What is up, everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi, and today we're going to be discussing a very, very interesting topic, African history, fact or fiction. And we've actually been able to bring on an expert today in this field, and we're going to be discussing various topics within the realm of African history. So without further ado, Abu Bakr, would you just like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about what you do and your relationship with African history? Well, thank you very much, Adnan. Uh, my name is Abu Bakr Madis. I'm a historian, sociologist, psychologist, and anthropologist. Uh, experience of my specialism is looking at the Black and African experience, and that goes back from the beginning of right up into the contemporary. Um, at the moment, I'm a special education tutor, county but council, dealing with pupils who suffer with learning disorders, who have special educational and disruptive behaviors. And I'm also uh, work for Bristol uh, College, IT development and health and social care. Awesome, thank you so much um, for being here today. And as usual, African history is one of those topics that I feel has come to the fore of the discussion, especially after the Black Lives Matter protests last year that sort of just shook the world. And I think that it's quite unfortunate that it took people, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people protesting, not just in the US, but in the UK, in Japan, all the way to Kenya, South Africa. It took so many people for the world to realize that we need to actually atone for what's happened to African history. It's been swept underneath the rug. And for those who are on my YouTube channel, uh, also go and subscribe to that if you want more content like this. Um, we were discussing how African history has been essentially, it's been suppressed from academia. It's been seen as a topic that people don't want to discuss. And it even starts to creep into academic journals. And I mean, I was just reading an article the other day for one of my classes, and um, they, they were easily conflating between the, the transatlantic chattel slavery and the, the, the indentured servitude that we find on the African continent and in Asia. And I mean, as academics, you can even see that, you know, they, some, some fall prey to this uh, ideology of just accepting that, oh, because it happened in Europe this way, that it, it must happen in Africa that way. So mm. in general, what's been your opinion on, on this act by, or like, you know, this, this lack of representation that African history has in the realm of academia and just in general society? Oh, can you hear me from your side? I can hear you from my oh, okay. side now. Seem to have paused. <laughs> oh, did I, did I pause? Yeah, your volume. Yeah, you, you, you seem to be muted. Mutant, Yoda. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the question was basically, what's been your opinion on on this suppression of African history that we've seen in relation to just in society and in the the realms of academia as well? What's been your opinion on that? I think my opinion that African history, unfortunately, but more unfortunately, fortunately, it's a great civilization, great high culture. But the unfortunate reality is that people who've moved into Africa over thousands of years have attributed our contributions, our achievements and accomplishments. And what has taken place as a result of that is that the experiences of Black 
African people in general have swept been swept under the rug or swept under the carpets, and they have this room of slavery. So no matter which country you go to or which group of states you go to, there seems to be this fascination with lighter-skinned people to like to start history with slavery. And the reality is, is that um, they don't know their own. Many of them who came out of the Caucasus Mountains into Asia, places like Mesopotamia. We know this from a religious perspective, whether we're looking at or the Torah or even the Bible. We know nation Sumerians were. Because one of the things is that they, they seem to maintain the lineage of particular groups. Of, and we know that Daskian people lived in places like, um, which is now Persia, Sumeria, India, even places like Egypt and Arabia. These were all dark skin or black land. Light skinned people came in. So the unfortunate thing is, is that during the transatlantic after the Moors were destroyed in 1492, what happened was that Europeans could no see the contribution, achievements, accomplishments by darker skinned people being attributed to them. So they slowly started attributed to other people who were never really in those countries or later interlopers into those countries. And they tried to put us into this room, this slave room. The slave system in which the Europeans themselves constructed, we know was chattel slavery. And what chattel slavery basically is, is whereby people, or subordinates have everything stripped from them, their beliefs, their values, and their mores. All these things are stripped from them. And the names of the slave owners, and then what happens is, is that their labor, their mind, by those people who own them. And this is totally different to the ancient understanding of slavery. Because the ancient understanding of slavery was basically, it wasn't chattel. You can still keep your name, you can still keep your identity, etc. What was owned was mainly your labor, not so much your, your life. And so you have a difference between chattel slavery, you have a difference between slavery, and there's other forms of slaveries as well that actually existed, but harsh and horrific type of slavery was that which was introduced into the Western world or the Americas known to transatlantic slave trade, where the whole identity from them. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. I think you mentioned that a lot of these people would attribute the achievements of Africans to other people. And I think we, very, we see this in the literature, and this is the problem with Eurocentric literature. It's not some conspiracy that we're saying, oh, everyone's out to get Black people. And, you know, it's, it's actually there. It's, it's, it's there in the literature. And one classic example is uh, the literature concerning the Swahili people. Yeah. And the fact that people went to the extent of claiming that they were an Arab colony, you know, and they're saying, oh, it must have been Arabs because this, this construction of these mosques, all these different, it must have been the Arabs, right? And um, we, thank God, we have, you know, more recent contemporary scholarship of people like Lyndon Harris that mention that, and like also Dr. John Sutton as well, who's written an extensive history on East Africa. Um, he mentions that, you know, this was their own culture. And Lyndon Harris actually in one of the articles um, mentions that the Arabs that actually came to the Swahili coast were Africanized. 
and they assimilated into parts of the Bantu culture. And out of that fusion came a new culture. Another issue is, for example, the Nok civilization. Uh, I was reading an article the other day and we, we were, were essentially looking at the topic of metallurgy and the Nok civilization seems to have skipped the Bronze Age and gone straight, straight to the Iron Age, right? Yeah. So this was obviously surprising. And, uh, you know, it's very, it's very odd that many people actually, I mean, the historian that was writing this said they must have gotten this information from people from North Africa who are lighter skinned. And I mean, I said, what, what evidence are you using to make that claim? It could have been, and we know this very well. You can go to, the, to Tanzania as well, where you can find this iron smelting that was done by the higher people. Um, I think in 2000, like 2000 years ago, as old as 2000 years ago. I mean, you can clearly see that Africans were leading in these categories. And even the first mine, you can find that on the African continent, Gwenya mine you know, around um, 43,000 years old. So, I mean, there's a consistent effort of downplaying African contributions or even attributing them wholly to someone else. So, I mean, this is def- definitely an issue. I mean, do you, do you have any other examples or do you want to perhaps expand a bit more? For instance, is one example. There's, there seems to be this denial Black people or African people, one of the contributing factors to that reality. But with recent composition with measurement of skulls and we shake entity of creating a melanin dose when he actually wanted it used in 19 in the Cairo uh, symposium debate with UNESCO and all these different scholars came around the world and what they basically said was that black people or African people were asked to come and speak about a country within Africa which was Egypt and shake entity up and feel feel or benga they came there and they did they did Basically, um, the the scholars which were there, mainly Eurocentric, from all over the world, was supposed to be the best into their fields. And UNESCO's report basically said, out of all the discussions that took place, the most best research papers, two actors, Thiel Thilo Bengal of the Congo and Sheikh Antidiop from Senegal. And they used different scientific disciplines to prove who the ancient Egyptians were for linguistic evidence. You know, and the main thing which 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 was uh, solidified was melanin dosage test, and this was something which was created by Sheikh Diop, where they put this chemical into the scrapings of the skin of the mummies and finding um, what you call it the, the, the melanin composition, okay, and the melanin tested like Ramses II tested for a high quantity of melanin evidence actually showed later on after, 90, after the 1980s that Ramses II as an and Sete the first his father were from a sub-Saharan type which would soon this was the second major branch of mutations that took place in Africa so we have we have science and we have other forms of disciplines substantiating what we've been trying to so the, the reality of this situation is that we have now got to use these science tell stories you know in a way because the oral traditions are not making it because that especially since the the latter part of the 1700s when the forces went into those places and because that was getting people being enslaved in places like etc they couldn't reconcile a high civilization and culture with people or people with people they would enslave it so they had to remove those people from those realms 
The other thing I think which is important for us to understand is if we're looking at like North African society, we know from genetic evidence they're from the Roman, they're from the Romanic, and the man came in much later. So when we're looking at the Empire of Carthage, for instance, which civilization, they they were they spoke Hebrew and they were from the Garamanti, the Garamanti people, an African people Hannibal himself was from. This is not European tribe or Asiatic tribe, this is an African tribe. And the Garamantes very, very famous. Um, one of the people who were Garamantes was the likes of, his name, if my memory serves me right, his name is um, Saint Jerome. And, okay, these were African priests, Catholic, you know, Af African priests that lived in North Africa at the time who came from that tribe and they were dark skinned. So when we look at what took place um, later on after the fall of Carthage, 46 BC, and then archaeological evidence that to excavate in those particular what they found that all the skulls in the major cemeteries of Tunisia, which we know, yeah, they resembled what they refer to as dark skin or African people. And they also looked at the cultural elements ex which existed in Carthage time, and they, they saw an identical practice with the people, with the dark skin people. Africa and in what they refer to as sub-Saharan Africa, which is, which we, we should call Africa. Africa. So there's a continuity of cultural connections. Don't find these cultural connections in places like Germany, where these North Africans come from. Focus Mountains, they come from the Slavic people. That's who they are. And they moved into those places. They were, they had, they were land poor, resource poor, and people poor. Couldn't feel them, feed them. We know that Africa in antiquity, which has been recorded not just in the Quran, is also been recorded use the breadbasket to feed outsiders. And coming to Africa to move and live, to eat, rather than to stay where they were and try to trade. Time when Africa was at its height. So these are just factors that we need to you know, acknowledge and understand. You know, ancient Egyptian society, if we look at the Carthaginian Empire, Looking at the empire of Monomotape in southern Africa, similar thing. They wanted to attribute that Portuguese. They wanted to, uh, uh, you know, um, attribute it to the Arabs. When wall stone walls were built long before they even had a high culture. So this is one of the things. There's been a deliberate attempt to falsify African history based upon distorting information, to destroy information, to suppress information and to intentionally confuse. And this is one of the things that we as African need to put those pages back because Africa has been shattered as a result of colonization, with different people coming in. So if we look at what took place with the first foreigners, the first foreigners to come into Africa comes in approximately about 1650 BC. And they came in, only lasted a few centuries and they were kicked out. Africans were able to reclaim their civilizations or their high cultures in North Africa. A lot of people don't know that when you look at ancient Egyptian civilization, they don't realize that North Africa is that realm. They look at Egypt as a nation. But the, the, the map that you usually see where Egypt is map of Egypt, which was drawn at the Berlin Conference in the 1880s. Okay, that, those lines. And they tried to use those lines and put it back in the past.
And this, this is poor scholarship by people. I'm not understanding what took place in the past, how the map looked, and the relationships they had. And then now with the first invaders, many of them had settled, mixed with them, or kicked out. And later on, the Assyrians came in on about 662, 663. They, they were kicked out. And then the Persians came in and the Cambyses in 25 BC. And then they stayed for a short time. And then later on, you had the Greeks under Alexander of Macedonia around 332 BC. So what you see, you start to see Indo-European cultures now coming into the northeastern and north northern elements of Africa and mixing with the people. This is what you start to see. And then we get the Romans coming on the box between 30 to 31 BC. And then what happens then? Other groups of people come in much later. Uh, so what I'm trying to emphasize here is that interlopers have come in to Africa. Africa was isolated for thousands and thousands of years. And if you go to European cultures, et cetera, where many of them come from, they didn't have an element of high culture. So most of the stuff which we understand today, many of them came into Africa, learned some of those sciences like mathematics, architecture, whatever the case may be, and went back into European societies to rebuild themselves, such as the Greeks and such as the Romans. Because it's ironic that the people which are the most civilized amongst Europeans are more closer to Africa than they are closer to Northern Europe. So it is clear where culture really originated from and diffused. So these are just some of the factors I think we need to acknowledge about the reality that African uh, culture or African cultures were very, very, they were, they were indigenous to the continent and there was very little um, interruption or interaction with different groups of people inside the country. And what has happened now is that DNA and phrenology, the measurement of skulls, osteological measurements is showing that the ancient people where high culture was developed were black African people. So the people who live in these countries must ask themselves whether we know when they came in. We know because we recorded it and they recorded it. So that is something that we need to look at. We need to look at all these different disciplines in order to substantiate and try to reclaim our past back into our legacies, as the, because it has been stolen, as uh, you know, as um, George G.M. James has said, stolen legacy. It's a legacy which has been stolen from us. So I think these are factors that we must put into play to understand the significant role that we have played as Black and African people in history, in science, in mathematics, in creating culture, high culture, and civilization. Yeah, I think those are very, I mean, you hit very many points, especially, I mean, some people would even find it just controversial to hear like the concept of, you know, oh, Egyptians were also black. And the thing is, I think what people fail to realize is that within the realms of history, within the realms of science, it's, it's perfectly fine to have differences of opinion and still have valid methodology. So you can feel free to challenge all these different ideals but you cannot refute valid methodology when you see it. And yeah, you can obviously, can, you can definitely critique the methodology itself, but as long as it's abided by the main principles of historical research, there's no need for you to say that, oh, this is automatically invalid or totally just rejected. And I think that's why we've seen like, obviously a lot of people just getting this sort of stereotype of like, oh, you know, 
all Afrocentrics are just people who make things up. Of course, we realize that the people who are extreme, who tried to claim that, oh, all this, everything was African. Like, obviously, like, we're not, we're not making that stance. All yeah. we're trying to say is that there have been situations in the past, even with Egypt, especially, we know that there was cultural exchange. Why is it? I mean, my, my question to people is that even if, let's say, for example, uh, Egyptian culture from like, you know, back in the day, right? Even if it was majority people that were light-skinned. It's like, you know, that's assuming that people migrated from the Levant, right? If the Levant is literally across, obviously there's the Red Sea and everything, and you still need to be able to cross. Why is it therefore not like, you know, logical that Nubians or people from down there would have just migrated upwards? Yeah. I mean, it's literally on the same landmass. You don't need to cross anything, right? Yeah. You know, and the Levant is slightly even further, right? So I don't see why people, you know, sort of just, automatically so oh, it's impossible for people to have migrated from down there then another yeah. additional thing as well is like when you talked about great zimbabwe and when in mutapa i believe it was in 1871 uh there was an explorer by the name of karl moch who said that you know this is something that you know it must be the the palace of uh queen queen of sheba or bilkis in uh yeah. you know in Islam, right so when we when we look at you know things like that it just makes absolutely no sense that people when they're examining the African continent, they will jump through hoops that don't even exist to try and, you know, justify the fact that, oh, you know, it couldn't have been Africans that did this. And it's not something that, that we're going to just accept <laughs> because now we have people who have at least black scholars that have come to the fore yeah. and African scholars who have decided that this is not what we're going to accept. Yeah. And even for example, when the Romans were trading, you know, uh, you, I like the fact that you brought up that fact because a lot of people don't actually realize that the Romans were trading with the Somalis and the Swahili coast way before, way before any form of colonialism. So people think that Africa was yeah. totally isolated and, exactly. you know, it was yeah. a dark continent. That's totally a myth. And yeah. even till today, there's a hunt for a place called Rapta. And one of the Tanzanian scholars who's leading that search is Felix Chami. And he's found archaeological evidence of Roman pottery. I think it was yeah. Roman and Greek pottery in, yeah. uh, in the next to a place called Mafia, yeah. right? And they're thinking that this, this was the furthest outpost that the Romans used to trade with. And it was yeah. described as this wonderful place where there was like, you know, you know, burgeoning trade of all these different things like tortoise shells, ivory, etc. So people don't really like hear these stories. And I mean, obviously it becomes very problematic when we teach people black history and they, they somehow question I mean, that's another thing that I've noticed is that when I mention these things to people, they question, yeah. oh, I have to do my own research, right? But yeah. when, when a European scholar comes out and says something, people take it as a given. Yeah, that's right. It is, it is a major problem. And this happened in the 1980s where Black and African people have been talking about for centuries their contribution of building the foundational principles of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, ancient Kemet, ancient Kush, and the list just goes on and on. And what happened was Martin Bennell, uh, he wrote a book called Black Athena, and he talked about the concept that took place in the 1800s between what was known as the ancient model and the Aryan model. The ancient model, he said, is a true model in which it was recorded. Nobody recorded more writings than the African continent. You know, I'm talking about scripts now, where we talked about which they refer to as Medunetia, okay, what the Greeks called hieroglyphics. 
Okay, we also see other forms of scripts, which were in, a, in the Iran Peninsula, which came out of the Cushitic groups that migrated there, you know, because even archaeological excavations, which was done in the, in the late, uh, the late 1800s, right up into the 1920s and 30s, actually show, they actually call it, uh, from, they actually call the Iran Peninsula the Nubian belt or complex, because what they actually find in the Iran Peninsula is the ancient, groups of people, the culture, you know, elements of the language, etc., can be associated with the Nubian groups. That's what they call Arabia's excavations. If you go to Bahrain, Qatar, and all those places, it's called the Nubian complex. So this is clear that Arabia was an extension, was the northeastern extension of Africa. But to get back to the point, what is important with all this taking place is that we have to use all these different sciences to try to prove something which we've already known for our oral traditions. And the reality is, is that, you know, there is controversy. And like Martin Bernal talked about the Aryan model, this was a falsification that came around about the 1830s. He documents this and how they tried to Aryanize the scholarship or the understanding of ancient African civilizations and how they started to deliberately insert. I have these volumes of his book and then it became acceptable in the many circles. But what has happened as, as a result of that is that we can now prove through DNA, we can now prove through osteological measurements, through craniological measurements, through cultural elements, through linguistic and scripts, all African. There's no doubt about that. And because the, because the people who live in these areas now don't have those cultural elements, they don't understand the script, they don't speak the language. So it's clear that they either brought languages with them or they adopted a language of interlopers which preceded them before they settled. So there is this notion that African cultures and African societies, etc., were living on the periphery. But like Sheikh Antediop said, he said, Egypt is to Africa as a continent, like Greece and Rome is to Europe. And Mesopotamia, you know, Mesopotamia, what is, which is a Greek word, but ancient Sumer, is to the Far East or the Near East, as what Greece and Rome is to Europe or what Egypt is to Africa. And this is why you have to say that culture begins in a certain place, you get cultural evolution and you get cultural diffusion through trade and commercial enterprises, through commissioning people from other places. We're not denying, okay? We're not denying that maybe people from the, 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 from the Levant, which are later invaders, because the original people of the Levant were known as the Canaanites. Then the Greeks called them Phoenicians. And then these Indo-European groups came mixed in and you know, mixed with the people, et cetera. And they become the people in the society we, we, we live today. They want to attribute things to. But we know where they came from. And because that has all been recorded and it's still in their oral traditions. So the reality of understanding history as it is, is that people have come in and they've taken what they've wanted and fabricated it to, put, to insert themselves in. Even Egyptologists in the early 1900s turned around and said, talked about this famous white tribe. All of a sudden they started talking about skin color. No one had no problem with the skin color of ancient Egypt. And I've read many documents to show that the people who migrated into Egypt from the time of the Hyksos, right up until the coming of the Ottomans in around about 1517, had no problem with the ancient people who the ancient Egyptians were. 
They knew what they were. And if you read the documents, they had no problems. It's when the French and the British came in, who were the biggest colonizers at the time, that's when we start to see a shift and a change in the narrative, which Martin Bennell talks about the Aryan model, the superior model of white people trying to attribute cultures and civilizations of other people to themselves. So it's unfortunate that's the reality. We, 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 you know, we have to prove, um, use different sciences, which they may have created in order to prove our point. But DNA doesn't lie. You know, craniology doesn't lie. And if those mummifications have allowed us to use the skin molecules to determine the amount of melanin in there, which is equivalent to the African people, then we have no problem with that at all. So we need to go back to the original sources in order to appreciate how that oral tradition or those cultural traditions established themselves in those particular regions. Yeah, no, I think, again, like just, just again, emphasizing on that point, I think that many people, <clears throat> unfortunately, don't understand the disciplines of history and science, right? At the end of the day, science and history as well they're all subject to what evidence is available, right? And we've seen historical paradigm shifts happen. And we've also seen paradigm shifts happen within the realms of science. So, I mean, when people automatically, I mean, they're so quick to rebuke other people and say that's automatically false. I mean, you can't even stand on that argument. Like you cannot stand on it, right? You can say it's more likely that this might be true that it's, it's less likely that that might be true. But at the same time, evidence could come up to show that perhaps beyond a reasonable doubt, something actually happened in this particular civilization. Yeah. But even when you mentioned scripts, I think a lot of people really forget the relationship with, I believe it was hieroglyphics and obviously Assyrian texts. Then you yeah. have the relationship with that and Greek and then Latin scripts and then English yeah. script. So you can see that the main source was actually ancient Egypt. And that's yeah. something that I've definitely heard about. But another yeah. contention that people bring up and a lot of people, you know, they try to downplay it is that they act as if Africans did not have any forms of writing. And a lot of people are very hesitant to accept oral tradition. And I don't know where this comes from. I think for me, with all due respect, it just has to do with Eurocentricism, right? Just because, right, in certain cultures in Europe, they had a habit of, for example, writing down certain things once in a while. Right? It does not necessarily mean that that is more truthful than certain forms of African oral tradition or even Arab, for example. We know about the Hadith sciences. This is something that comes from Islam. Yeah. And the Hadith sciences, right? Some, some, even some historical accounts, for example, like the existence of George Washington, they would not meet the requirements of what's considered sahih or authentic in the Hadith sciences. And then if you compare that to Mali, right, where they had their own form of griots and historians, etc., people had their own way. Obviously, sometimes people would add their own twang to it, etc. Yeah. But obviously, yeah, this is people acknowledge this, and there was there was a vast amount of scholarship yeah. that uh, you know, people were referring to when uh, when you look at griots, etc. But another yeah. issue was also during the colonial period, is yeah. that a lot of the oral tradition was actually lost because people were either killed, or even yeah. during slavery, people were just taken yeah. away, etc. So I feel like people really misunderstand the concept yeah. of writing, and I think we're going to actually move on to you know African writing systems because I think this one thing we 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 really need to like home in on. 
But in terms of African writing systems, I was really shocked because I've done, I'm, I'm very active on TikTok and sharing this content with, with younger yeah. viewers. But people don't really realize how many African writing systems there are. And I can just name a couple. So yeah. obviously we're going, to, we're going to focus on Africa south of the Sahara. Right. Okay. I don't like to say sub-Saharan African anymore because well. obviously, yeah, yeah some, I've tried calling it South of Saharan Africa or South of the Sahara just because the distinction is there in the academia. Yeah. But sub adds a totally different lead to it. So That's I'm just right. going to stick with Africa South of the Sahara. So obviously we have Meroitic script, which hasn't been fully decoded today. Yeah. And of course, from North Africa, although, you know, part of the Amazigh tribe, we have people who are obviously, some are darker skin, some are lighter skin, et cetera, but it's majority lighter skin today. Yeah. So obviously from the Amazigh people, you have Tifinak, right? But you obviously have Ajami, which was, it was obviously taken from Arabic script, but Africans, as we said, we, we adapted that to yeah. write languages like, you know, um, Mandinka, Swahili, you can write Swahili and Ajami, even Afrikaans, some people write, like there's been some scripts that are found, you know, writing... Mm in Ajami, right? And mm. then some other people don't even know about Vai script. The Vai people were very literate and yeah. they were actually more literate than in some places in Europe. Yeah. And I mean, you can, you can go and check this up. I think it's called endangeredalphabets.com and you can go and check for yourself. Okay. There's that. There's also the script of Bamum, which was created by the king of Bamum. And mm. obviously when the French came around uh, and sorry, the Germans and the French as well, Right, they actually just burned down the library that he had made and he had a printing press. But yeah. there's, there's so many different scripts. There's Nko, there's NCBD, and yeah. also there's a report from uh, one of these other people. I can't remember his name. He was an explorer. He was heading down to Mwenemutapa and he saw an inscription on the wall and yeah. neither the Swahili traders could read it or yeah. and the same thing for the Europeans. They couldn't read it. So yeah. it, it's very possible that we haven't quite discovered yet but mm. there might be some writing systems in the southern part of Africa. Yeah, well, it would definitely be writing systems, you know, because when we look at uh, the Congo, there were scripts which were found in the Congo because they found the Eshango bone, I think it's called, which looked at measurements, etc. So there was a writing technique which was used. And we also know that when we look at the aspect which is known as a Libyan script, you know, the Libyan script ends up in places like um, the Americas, you know, if you read the works of Ivan Van Sertima and Barry Fell, etc., they actually see Arabic, but they also see a Libyan script there. And we know during the time of the Malian Empire, etc., the Libyan script, which is something that they were using to write alongside with Arabic. So, and that goes to show, so when you've got a script, it, 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 what, what a script tells us, a script tells us a few things. First, it tells you, you have an intelligentsia. This is what a script says. So you've got people who can read and write. Then you've got people who are priests, who are doctors, you know, uh, who are specialists, whatever the case may be, engineers, mathematicians. That's what the script tells you first and foremost. The second thing that the script tells you is that there's some element of communication and recording. So they're recording what's happening and there's some form of written communication with neighboring countries or neighboring states or neighboring nations. That's the other thing. So we're now seeing cultural diffusion take place as a result of scripts. The other thing which you understand about when, when we're looking at script, there has to be an economy which pushes that, you know, trade and commercial enterprises. 
you know, import and export, etc. So just from so even though so even though we look at the script and it's being downplayed by Eurocentrics, it tells us the internal um, evolutionary development of that society of being advanced because the metallurgical uh, production on the industry has to be in play where, when you got a script as well. You know, so all of these are factors that show an element of high culture. When you have a script, there's an element of high culture there now. It could be poor people, but you have an intelligentsia. And that intelligentsia pushes the knowledge to another level. So I think that this is something which is really being downplayed, you know, and the reality is, is that scripts actually tells us the advancement of cultures. And because Europe only have a few scripts, because we know how they ended up with their script. We know that the ancient Phoenicians, we should call them Canaanites, not, you know, because all these names that we use in now for Africa, et cetera, are foreigners or interlopers or invaders are giving us these names. This is why you've got to take it back to its primary source. Once you take it back to their primary source, we displace them automatically. We, we you know, and this is what it is. We've got to take it back to its original language. And if you talk about the original language, how was it understood by those people? So when the Phoenicians went trading all around the world, et cetera, as what the Greeks called them, they were the ones which adopted the script for the Greeks, which we call the, the, the alphabet. And then obviously the Romans, when they took over from the Greek empire, et cetera, they learned the script from the Greeks and then the Romans came with them. Cyrillic script came only a few hundred years ago. So they have limited scripts. You know, and we have to acknowledge that the scripts, which is in Africa, which are, which are, which are large and, and, and immense, need to be recognized for what they are, that they were educated people and they weren't savages living in trees and waiting for, you know, the light, the light skinned man to come in to civilize them when they had nothing in their societies, which was any more advanced than what we had. And this is what we have to acknowledge. People move into a place when there is something there. No one moves into a barren, no one moves into a barren place unless they're the first people there. But when you've got interlopers coming in, et cetera, you have to have some, you have to have a system there, legal system, a political system, a script, a language, mathematicians and doctors and nurses and physicians and all these different groups of people all play an integral role in driving that high culture into a civilization to develop and to touch other neighboring communities or nations where they can actually then develop alongside this so-called diffusion. So scripts are, scripts are very important. I know Ivan Van Sertma himself, because I did speak to him before he passed away. And one of the things, I didn't speak this to him, but what Ivan Van Sertma is saying in his books that when he was a student in SOAS, when he was wanting to do things on linguistics, because he's a linguist and he was speaking to his professors, his professors turned around to him and said that Africa had produced no scripts. This is what he said, because Ivan Van Sertima spoke Swahili, you know, uh, fluently. And he wanted to look at Swahili culture and look at the legal system and legal terms. This has never been done. And he said that, and this is Professor, who's supposed to be the world authority, because they, they like to give themselves these titles, the world authority on Swahili culture, saying that, oh no, Van Sertima, these people didn't have a script. They didn't have a language. And then he found out there was a script there, there was a language, there were legal terms, which meant that when they went back in time, that there was a sophisticated system which was in place before colonization came in and destroyed that. So 
the reality is, is that Africa has been fragmented by outsiders, whether internal or external. And the reality is, is that we now have to put those pieces together. And I believe that most of us now who are in these sciences are able to do that, whether we're inside the continent or from outside. But Africa is going through a repair now because of colonization. Yeah, and I think back to the point surrounding high culture, um, I think people need to, again, stop viewing this world from a Eurocentric perspective and assuming that, oh, because Europe did this, this is a standard of civilization. Yeah. There's, no, there's no rule that says that, right? And it's important for us to realize the sheer diversity of culture around the world. Why should we accept Europe's form of culture as the determining factor for what civilization means? And as we can see, this is what I know about writing. In West Africa, you can argue, yes, the, the number of scripts, etc. we have a variety of scripts, right? But look at who was actually using them. Mm. A lot of people actually, I mean, many historians actually point towards higher scholarship or priests, and you have diplomats, etc., that were the main people that were using writing forms. And even in CBD, I believe, was used... Uh, by people in secret societies so that they could be able to uh, just contact each other, etc. So what people need to realize is that, I mean, just because, I mean, a certain society didn't necessarily value mass, mass, uh, you know, educating the people on like writing, doesn't mean that that society is therefore backwards. I mean, obviously people are, let's say, pastoralists, right? What use is reading going to do to them? I mean, like, there's no, there's, I mean, you have a certain group of people in society, like the priesthood, who are tr- entrusted with knowledge. Even, for example, to become a griot, you, there's an entire process behind it. Even, for example, with the Dogon people in Mali, yeah. when you're learning history or when you're learning your, your ethnic group's history, you actually go away. And I think it's an entire one-year process or six-month process where you're, you're just learning. Yeah. And you're learning and you're learning. Right? And I think a lot of people also, uh, they assume that writing is the only way, or that, that's the only way that you can uh, you know, deal with history. But the yeah. people of Benin actually kept their history by making bronzes. Yeah. And you know, this is not only a creative way of keeping your history, but it also shows the values of the bronzes itself. So you can't say, oh, Benin, this is the only way that you can view Benin history, you know, uh, the city, etc., the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, you can only rely on the accounts of people like Lorenzo Pinto and Alpha Dapa, you know, all these explorers, right? That, this is, even when I was studying, it's like unfortunate that we have to use the accounts of Europeans and we can't even go to the original source because, oh, yeah. that's not academic. That's, that's not scholarship. And also, yeah. not only that, it's like even if we wanted to study these bronzes and see what they mean and take them to the people and ask them, you know, ask the elders, what does this bronze actually mean in terms of your history? Yeah. We can't do that because they're locked up in British museums and uh, the French museums in Germany and in Austria, right? Yeah. That's 438,000 African artifacts that are yeah. locked up in European museums. Yeah. So even when you have that, there's a sincere issue in terms of us being able to get the resources to be able to actually look into yeah. our African history. Then another point I really wanted to touch on is that people really think that Africa, in quotes, had no history. But also Africa hasn't really, I mean, it really hasn't been excavated to the extent of different areas. The main place that people have excavated is Egypt, right? right? And 
the main thing we also need to realize is that, for example, even in the University of Timbuktu, the University of Sankore, National Geographic actually estimates that within Timbuktu, there's been around 700,000 manuscripts. Mm. And we've not even been able to decode yeah. half. Yeah. Right? And the issue with this is that there's no funding for it. Now imagine if we're able to actually go through all those manuscripts and see what the, what was really in those books, you know? Yes, yes. Yeah, that is important. If you're looking at the University of Timbuktu, um, you know, Sankore University, which was established during the Islamic period, this is where Africans, were Muslims now, are doing their own thing. And we know from many of the reports uh, which, were, which was found in places like Egypt, because Egypt was in a lot of contact with West Africa, especially after Mansa Musa's journey into Mecca around about 1324, 1325. So there was more of a literary, um, what you call it, connection between what was taking place in Egypt, North Africa, and what they would refer to, you know, what we refer to as West Africa. And all those things, you know, basically comes together. But if we're looking at the, the manuscripts, you know, if we're looking at the Empire of Mali and Songhai, because, you know, obviously that was, that extended even further, et cetera. And we're looking at all those manuscripts. One of the things that George M. James says in his book about um, ancient Kemetic culture or civilization was that the people who became the custodians of that knowledge was the people who were west of the country. And what he, what he referred to was those who were in West Africa and those who were in North Africa. So what happened was for centuries, that knowledge in, in ancient Kemet lay dormant for a certain time in West Africa. And I think through, 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 through the um, dissemination of information during the time of Islam, they were able to make their contribution, make those connections and to bring it to a high level. And I think this is something that um, Western scholarship has downplayed to a large extent, you know, the, the contribution, achievements and the accomplishments in which different nation states within Africa has played in a significant manner of raising its profile in the ancient world. And a lot of that, uh, you know, a lot of that has to do with jealousy, a lot of that has to do with falsification. And there's always a question mark when we are trying to do things, when we're trying to claim back, you know, a lot of the cultures in, in, in East Africa and in North Africa, for instance, because the populations are much lighter, you know, there's no, you know, they, it's, it's what they refer to as transubstantiation. They look at the populations today and say, this was the demography and the size of the population in antiquity. This is untrue. And even if you look before colonization of the 1880s, if you look at all those North African states, they all had black leaders. They all, every single one of them had black leaders. It was only when the French came in and because of their discriminatory practices, they moved those darker skinned people to the bottom and those mixed race mulattoes that are at the bottom of the social ladder, they moved to the top. This is why North Africa looks the way it looks. And that's been documented by the French, even though it may have been lost amongst the people. So the reality is, if we're looking at the whole situation of contribution, achievement, and literature, why would you have? Why are we forced to look at European resources or sources for our history? And it all starts approximately 146 BC when the Romans came in and they burned the Library of Carthage. Over 500,000 volumes were put to flames. Knowledge of the ancient world were put to flames. And then later on, during the time of Cleopatra, between 46 and 48 BC, 
Another burning takes place. Yeah, you know, the Library of Alexandria, approximately 500,000 works are put to flames. But because of what took place in Nubia, a lot of those books which were recorded on papyrus, okay, a lot of that information went down into Mero and Napata, which were great kingdoms at the time. They housed some of this stuff. They were able to rewrite these things and stack them back. They were not able to recover all of them during the time of Cleopatra, but that was the Romans burning, you know, books, etc. And then obviously around about 380, 88 to 89 AD, Emperor Theodosius comes in, he destroys the library of Alexandria, steals and loots all those books, brings them back, creates the religion, which is called Catholicism, a form of Christianity, which means universal, because they decided that they didn't want Coptic Christianity and Orthodox Christianity, which was in East Africa and North Africa, to be the main source of religion, because that's what they wanted to control. So the reason why we had to rely on secondary sources like Greek and Roman and European was because of the deliberate attempt to destroy all that written material of the ancient world. And that is why we're in the position we're today, Adnan, unfortunately. But if we look at the, you know, and that's just it. When in 1591, you, we get the Moroccans jealousy that takes place at the time, they come down and destroy the Songhai Empire. In 1591, takes those Muslim scholars and slays into North Africa. They had to release them because of the, the level of knowledge that these people had. Even if you look, and I, I forgot to mention, even if you look at some of the documents in ancient Egypt or in Egypt during the Islamic period, they said that even when Arabs used to go to the University of Timbuktu to even teach, they never had, even the students were more intelligent than the so-called scholars in those regions. This is what they said. So they were on another level. So not only they were custodians of ancient comedic knowledge, they were able to raise the knowledge up to another level. And I think this has been downplayed to a large extent, but we have to acknowledge and realize that scripts and books, the record of information and the deciphering of this information is really important. And we need to make it so important to the point that all those people from our communities who are making millions a week whether they're in sports or what have you, we need to hold them accountable, not for them to go out spending money and buying this and buying that, in order to put that money back into the continent now, okay? And to, to, rejuvenate, to rejuvenate the understanding of what took place so we can preserve these records because this is our history. We need to start preserving it for ourselves because as soon as the Europeans come in, they preserve, they take it, they, they take it out, put them in museums, which is stolen. They're all stolen, all these, all these artifacts, these books, et cetera. When there's wars in these countries, they come in and they take them and, you know, cause the people, their attention is somewhere else. They take all these things. They then they learn the language, translate it and make hundreds upon thousands of pounds on this information, sell it back to us three, four, five times the price. They don't really give us the authentic translate. They're still hiding information. You know, and that is the unfortunate thing about it. But we need to realize that we have a role to play in changing this so-called narrative because there has been a destruction in our literary tradition deliberately by interlopers and outsiders and why we have to rely on these interlopers and outsiders to tell us something about our history when they even weren't there to record it in its primary state. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's important to realize, and like, um, some people might be like, I mean, 
skeptical of the fact that, oh, the Sankore University was that great. But no, there are reports, right? And I can even mention certain names of people. Um, if you want to start with Muhammad Bagayogo. That's um, right, yeah. Yeah, he's a very, very big scholar. And he actually, I believe he was the one who received an honorary doctorate degree from the Al-Azhar in institution in Egypt, right? And then obviously you have a student who's, who's like literally has a library named after him. And may Allah be pleased with him because he did a lot of work in terms of Maliki fiqh, right? His name is Ahmed Baba. That's right. Ahmed Baba literally said that he had a library that had around 1,600 books and his friends had significantly larger libraries than him. And I mean, this is something that people shouldn't be skeptical about because even when, I mean, there was obviously the, the invasion of Sunni Ali, unfortunately, he also went in and uh, he killed a few scholars uh, in, uh, the, in the Sankore University. And obviously there was a bit of a sacking that happened. And then obviously when the French came and they colonized, they did also put books in the ground and they also burnt some other ones, yeah. right? So, I mean, there's been a huge destruction of the knowledge that actually being, you know, there in the continent. And then perhaps we can debunk this claim together, but a lot of people, I mean, when I mentioned the Malian empire, uh, they mentioned that, oh, we you know it was, it was under Arab influence. And <laughs> this is a claim that I personally find it's, it's hilarious because if you look in quotes at this Arab influence, right? I mean, for me, I just want to ask them a question, right? Obviously, we know for Mali, it was not like an empire like Kanembornu, mm. where everyone had uh, converted into to Islam. Or like it was just a minority yeah. that were non-Muslims, right? Yeah. If you look at the descriptions of Mali from people like Leo Africanus and yes. Ibn Battuta, That's right. they, they mention, for example, certain norms, like, you know, people... Uh, like, you know, the, the women were like topless, etc. And that's something that was like a previous culture there. And although, yes, there was a lot of people that were memorizing Quran, etc. There was one side of the society, but there's also a totally different side of that society, right? Mm. So it's not like the Arabs had control. That's the first thing. So it's like, because if Arabs had full control or like they were even in charge, then you'd be seeing Islamic law being practiced, first of all. And people can't just walk around topless or you can't even have like shorts yeah. above your knee right? That's one thing that we would have seen. Additionally, why is it that we ended up seeing someone like Ibn Battuta traveling to Mali and being one of the few sources that we have? Why don't we see these records somewhere in a place like Mecca, for example, if they were the ones that were in control? We do recognize that Ajami was was there, but it was more convenient because the Quran was in Arabic, right? And all these other scriptures and, you know, all these, you know, Al-Muwatta by Imam Malik, may Allah be pleased with him, all these different books, the, the classical works from Islam and Arabic. So if you're writing an Ajami, I mean, it, it just makes sense. It's more convenient. But yeah. that was not necessarily proof that Arabs somehow had control over Timbuktu. But what are your thoughts on that? No, they didn't have control over Timbuktu because they didn't have control over North Africa. And after Uqba ibn Afir, you know, and then we had, you know, people that, that, that came after him and before the Moors actually goes into Spain, the majority of the army that goes in were African Berbers. Okay. And the reality is, is that eventually they absorbed the Arab, you know, they, they absorbed those Arabs that came over, you know, and they also absorbed the language. So what you start to find on the Umayyads period is an African Berber period. They were marrying Berber women. They didn't bring Arab women with them. They didn't bring Arab women with them 
uh, when they went to Syria. They didn't bring Arab women in when they went to Iraq after the Battle of Qadassia. So who were the women that they were having these children with? So we can claim, easily claim, you know, that North African society, etc., was indigenous, indigenously controlled. Okay, and this is the thing, you know, and because what happened was they started getting weaker, etc. Majority of the people wouldn't listen to them because they may have been given elements of more booty to their countrymen and not the people who did the hard work. Because this is what comes out with the likes of Tariq ibn Ziyad and Musa ibn Nasir. You know, no one like, you know, you notice when you when I've read a lot of books which are translated from the Arabic, they never like to mention this part, unfortunately. So there is a lot of falsification in history you know, by Arabs themselves, when it comes of dealing with the true narrative of the people within Africa, within North Africa, etc., They looked at the Amazia people as being lowly people, and they've, they've written them out to some extent. And that tradition then spreads, you know, south of the Sahara, literally. So we're talking, when we look at the Birabas, when we look at the Lamchuna and the... Um, the Zanata and all these other type of Berbers when we're looking at the um, the Almorabitin, for instance, and when they uh, amalgamated come together in places like Senegal and Mauritania, etc., and bringing all those individuals up and then conquering, conquering North Africa, you know, in the capital city being Marrakesh. This is not out of control now. This is Islam three between three to 400 years, probably 300, maybe 350 years old on the continent. You have dark-skinned people controlling things because we know it's the Berbers which controlled the trade, you know? And it was the Berbers that really had connection between South of the Sahara and North Africa that was bringing down information, yeah? So it wasn't, but this is what happens, unfortunately. They don't do that with the Ottomans because the Ottomans were white. Okay, we need to be realistic. We need to be brutally honest. They don't. They don't do it to the Mamluks. You know, they don't do it to Safavids and all these other groups of people that came and overran. Okay, they see it as being what you call it a Turkic or a Turkish or a Slavic or Germanic or whatever the case may be. But as soon as contributions come into the African continent, they like to they like to downplay our contribution and give it to themselves. But we were the vast majority that understood the terrain, the trade and commercial enterprise and that we controlled, we brought them into it. Okay, they didn't fight, they really brought them into it and they benefited bringing some of those commodities back into the Arabian Peninsula, etc. So that's the way we have to deal with things. We have to, we have to look at sources and we have to look at sources by the people. One of the problems, Adnan, before I end, one of the problems I have with people, and it really does my head in, they will not read books about the people by the people. They will only read books which is written by their people about us or other people about us, but we cannot write. And this is one of the sicknesses that people have when it comes to interpreting accurately the reality of society or culture that was around at that time. And this is one of the problems we have. So it is something that we have to contend with as, as, as scholars and as intellectuals, as trying to put those pieces together. Because for us, African past, the African continent or African history is a jigsaw puzzle. And we've almost completed, you know, the, uh, the vision of what it's supposed to look like. <clears throat>
Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that um, even when I was looking for African history books, I could barely find books that were written by Africans themselves. I found books written by Graham Connor, who's an American, white American. Uh, it was only recently till I found Robin Walker, When We Ruled, yeah. um, and books like that. And I think it's it's quite difficult. And like, I mean, I, I must say to the listeners, like, uh, definitely when it comes to something like ancient Egypt, for example, I'm not an expert. Um, even when it comes to the, the Moors, I'm not an expert. But I think we'll move into, um, I mean, wh- how it's become so racialized. But here's what I do know about the Moors because of um, obviously just reading different books about um, slavery and like not necessarily slavery, but the system of Riq. I don't like to mention slavery because people think American chattel slavery. So if you want to read more, read about the system of Riq. And that's like how, how that manifested in uh, you know, all these different um, Muslim empires, even though it wasn't necessarily practiced as something proper, where it was supposed to be a prisoner of war system only, there was a whole lot of dodgy things that were going on. That's the whole point. Mm-hmm. But we do know that, um, and one thing I need to definitely, I, I don't quote me on this, right? But I do know that, for example, uh, there was a lot of war that was happening. And what would happen is that several, like even just raids in general, and there was definitely like those black soldiers that were actually taken and they ended up serving as guards in certain, like during certain periods in Egypt. And obviously when you're talking about the Moors, it's like a mixture. So like you do actually have black soldiers, right? When you're talking about the Almoravids, the ones that actually went into Spain, right? And had that civilization of Al-Andalus, right? There were undoubtedly, there was black participation. So like there's on one hand, people claiming that, oh, no, there was no contribution whatsoever, right? No black people at all. Right. Then on the other hand, we people say that it's all black and like there's no one else like does it. Right. But I think it's more or less somewhere in the middle. That's what I know from like, you know, my my sort of minuscule knowledge. But the whole point was this. It had to be that way because obviously, right, you know, who was who was I mean, those definite like wars between obviously Northern African ethnic groups, Western African ethnic groups, etc. And just in general, that trans-Saharan route of people that were taken over, I believe it was 12 million people over a millennia. So there's a lot of trading that was actually happening, right, in these areas. So it's very, it's very clear that you'd have some dark-skinned people that ended up uh, becoming soldiers in these different areas. And even if people want to talk about black people who uh, got involved in the system or those like you know these haram forms of raids that were happening, right? They were taken. Someone like um, I can't remember Malik Ambar was also someone who was taken in a raid, I believe. That's and, right. Yeah, um, he was. He was taken in a raid and obviously raids are haram, right? Yeah. Um, so when it comes to when it comes to that, he was actually taken all the way to India and he became eventually became the Sultan of Ahmadnagar, right? Yeah. So that's what I mean, people don't even hear these stories, right? Yeah. But um, I've kind of sidetracked a bit. But in terms of the Moors themselves, um, what do you believe um, to be, I mean, the, uh, the Moors in general? Who are the Moors in general? And what is the, so that, what is the big debate that surrounds this topic? Right. The Moors are exactly the same as Ethiopians. And what it is, is just a description. What Ethiopian means, Ethiopian, uh, the, the word Ethiopian comes from the word, uh, from a Greek word. Ops means face, ethios means basically burnt or charred. Okay, so it's a description for an African. This is what it is, a description for an African. Even an Arab, because Arabs at that time were still dark. We know this. If you read many of the descriptions of the early followers of Rasulullah, they were dark skinned. The tribe of Sulem was a dark tribe. 
you know, and so on and so forth. So there was no problems with, with, with these type of uh, descriptors, etc. But the thing is, if we're looking at the Moors, the word Moors comes from the word Moroso Moris, which is from a, from a Greek or Latin word, which means dark or black. It's an adjective. So it's not a problem. But because these groups of people, you know, before the time of Islam, because what is important here is that when the Romans came in 146 BC and destroyed the empire of Carthage, etc., it took them almost 100 years to get to Mauritania. And then, because all that land which the Romans controlled was known as Mauritania, not Mauritania today. Mauritania was uh, was Algeria, Western Sahara, Morocco, you know, um, what you call it, Tunisia and Libya. That was called, those areas were called Mauritania, land of the Moors, okay? And then what happened then, the word Moor was used nearly 700 years, let's say 650 years before the event of Islam. So we know we're not talking about people in the Red Peninsula. We're talking about African people who were living in the northern, western part of Africa. But what brings them into fruition, basically, is the fact of when the Umayyads come in and then they use those dark-skinned Berbers in order to take over Al-Andalus, you know, in 711 AD. And then what happens is the Moors with the Umayyads now develop a culture, a high culture and civilization that lasted for over 781 years, just call it 800 years. And between that, the Moors were groups of people that came out of West Africa, came out of, you know, Western Sahara, North Africa. Any person who was considered Daskin was considered a Moor. But what is important here is that we have Christian Moors. So we know we're not talking about Muslims because they say that Moor is synonymous with Muslim. Well, if that's the case, what about Sermonia? What about Sermonis? They come before the time of Islam. So it is an adjective to describe the people. And then unfortunately, what took place after 1492, you know, when the Moors had fallen, because what happened was the Berbers literally took over at that time, during the time of Yusuf and Tasfin, and you've got the uh, Amoravids, and then they spread there, there for a, maybe a century or so, or just over a century. And then another group of African Berbers come in, the Al-Mawahideen, you know, they come in, etc. The Almohads, which is usually translated as. And it's amazing how they translate these two groups, but they don't translate the Umayyads. The Umayyads is simply Umayyads. But as far as the Almoravideen, the Almoravids, and the Almohadideen, the Almohads. Because, and this is what they do, they come in and they try, and as soon as we bring contribution of some way, some group of people come and try and translate it. And I have an issue with that, like I said. So they goes in 780, when they 800 years, bring science and technology and all these different things, mathematics and philosophy and whatever the case may be. And then obviously their fall comes down in 1492. And then and they move from being what was known as Moors, to Morescos. Morescos basically means little more. The Jews were called Morenos, Morenos. The Jews were dark at that time as well. That's what they were called. Okay, those which basically, um, whether, they, whether they embraced Catholicism or not, this is what they were called. 
And then a group of people from that particular part of that region were then sent to the so-called Caribbean island under the likes of Christopher Columbus. And then we then they are called Maroons. So they moved from, from Moors, Morescos to Maroons. In Britain at the time, because we have evidence that the Moors in Spain and Portugal was trading in Britain as early as the 10th century. And what happened was they were calling them Moors. And then after the slave period, after the slave period was established in the early 1500s, we start, they started to move from Moors to Blacker Moor, which meant black as a Moor. It's like saying white as snow. So from linguistic expression, we know who the Moors were. But what is happening now is that interlopers have come in, you know, imposters have come in and tried to do their little bit to distort certain things. But there's a lot of recorded evidence to show who the Moors were, where they came from. They talk about their lineage, which groups of people they come from, who are still dark skin even till today. And what we can do to try to understand their contribution, achievements and accomplishments as people, not as black people, but we always have to fight in order to show the racial composition of these groups of people, because other people who want to give it to themselves don't want us to have this for whatever reason. You know, it can be a form of jealousy, but it's all about falsification, suppression, distortion to intentionally confuse. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. It's a very, I mean, I'm going to need to read up a lot on like the Moors in general. Uh, just see, I mean, it's, it's, the thing is, it, it works out in my mind as well, because of obviously the trans-Saharan trait, that it makes sense. Like it does make yeah. sense. And we, we have records like showing people were often like they were serving as soldiers and you, even not even just there, like, you know, as mm. far as places like Turkey, you know, serving as soldiers, a black person, like, you know, you could yeah. easily be just transported all the way to Egypt to a market in Fustat, for example, and then just yeah. be taken all the way to Constantinople. And then, you know, you can serve as a soldier there. So, I mean, for me, it just, it, it makes sense, right? But obviously, yeah, there's a lot of literature that needs to be gone through, etc. And it's always good to discuss like these things. I feel like a lot of people wonder like, oh, why do you need to make everything about race? Everything has been about race for the past 500 years. Yeah, it has been about race. It's only, it's only a problem about race now because what they've lied about in the last five centuries or even longer as is now turned itself on its head and it's psychologically and historically displacing them and what they've believed and it's very uncomfortable but it has been about race and it's still about race even till today all those societies are stratified lighter skinned people at the top darker skinned people at the bottom so don't tell me it's not about race or we're all one and all you know this is all hypocrisy Okay, stop lying to yourself and stop lying to me. If I look at the screen and I don't see my reflection looking back at me, that's telling me a narrative in the story. You may be looking at the scenery and all the other things was taking place, but I am a human being. And I like, to, you know, when I look in the mirror, I see myself. When I look at the TV, I want to see myself. If you see yourself and you don't see me and you think that's natural and normal, there is something wrong with you in no sense, because you're not acknowledging my narrative and my place. If I've been displaced or invisible, and you're trying to tell me that everything is okay, you're living in cuckoo land. You're not really living in this world. And it's not, and, and, and the thing is, it's not always their fault. And I'll tell you why, because you've got two groups of people. You've got those people who are ignorant, which I mean, they, they, just, they just don't know. And you've got those people who are arrogant. They know, 
but they refuse to acknowledge the truth when it hurts them because they've been made to believe in a narrative, even though they can't prove it, it's been saturated in their mind, in their heart, in their hearing, in their sight, to, to such a point that they can't move away from it and they do not want to move away from it. So we as individuals, we just have to, we just have to acknowledge it. We just got to keep the fight up, you know, mm -hmm. and scholarship is proving them wrong to a large extent. And we have to get these people to read our literature. They won't read our literature. They refuse to read our literature. Mm. We recognize that. You know, if I'm looking at the book on African history, for instance, all the people and names are, are British names, American names, Swedish names, French names, etc. You know, and if they are other people with um, Muslim names, they're either Persian or maybe Turkish or maybe Kurdish or whatever the case. What about us? And this yeah. is something which I say, why can't we tell our own story? We're not capable of, or we're not allowed to. And, and this is something I feel that we have to fight, to, we, have, we have to change this now. And I think the change, is, uh, the change has come about. Like I said, the symposium took place in 1974 with Sheikh Adi Diop and or Benga, where, you know, and the UNESCO, because UNESCO said that the people that attended this conference, they had their backsides whipped, intellectually whipped by these two men who brought in a multidisciplinary, because some of them were just pot experts, call themselves Egyptologists, they were they're experts of pots. That's all, that, you know, we have to understand some are experts in hieroglyphics, some are experts in pots, some are experts in culture. But when you look at the genealogy of the pharaohs, this is where they fell. And this is how these two men basically came and put them in their place. They don't even know the tribes of Africa and where they originated from, how they came about or combinated, the relationships they had for thousands of years through trade and commercial enterprising, through import and export, through diplomacy and all these other types of things. So it's basically the jigsaw pieces that we are trying to put together, Adnan. Yeah, definitely. And I think we need to, first of all, I mean, we need to educate Africans on the basic history. And we also need to get Africans that are willing to do so into these realms of scholarship. Yeah. And I mean, even today, I mean, I, I was reading an article today. I mean, I, I can't, I can't really get this off my chest because it really made me mad. Right. But obviously, uh, you know, I was reading and this is this school of thought um, and it's like a bit sidetracked with the school of thought that's really trying to downplay the economic benefits that slavery and transatlantic, yeah, specifically transatlantic slavery gave Britain and the Americas, mm. right? So, I mean, they were referring to this as the, you know, the school of thought that uh, many Africans do follow as a new history of capitalism, which looks at obviously how slavery was directly correlated to and gave, you know, it was essentially the, the right foundation for the industrial revolution. Mm. So, I mean, I was reading the article and they, they were just bringing up all these funny points of, you know, saying that after the, the Af basically saying that these scholars are making wild assertions right mm -hmm. in this paper ma making wild assertions that have no evidence that's essentially what they're saying and then they go on into the paper saying that oh you know what they didn't they basically said that Af i mean the europe i mean europe in general didn't even need slavery they could have industrialized without slavery yeah. and the example that they gave in this article is that oh they didn't need to use cotton they could have easily switched to woolen industries from Australia. And I asked, <laughs> you know, who's in Australia, right? Yeah. And you'd obviously have to just enslave the Aboriginals, which did happen. So yeah. it shows that, I mean, like, 
even that, right? You know, that was not the only point that they made. They tried to, and I'd referenced this earlier, they tried to say then if slavery was one of the main reasons for the industrialized industrial revolution, then why didn't it happen in Africa, right? Where there was slavery. And, you know, this just shows you how ignorant, I mean, these people are supposed to be scholars, yeah. right? They don't even know the differences in yeah. the types of asymmetrical relationships people had. They weren't even, for example, owners or, you know, slaves or viewed as chattel, as you mentioned. It's like you couldn't just randomly kill a slave in the, the Malian Empire, right? If you read the Korakon Foga, Article 20 says that you're the master of the slave, not the bag that he carries, right? Yeah. So, and then there's, it's talking about, you know, the commentary over here mentions that you have to work for a reasonable amount, like for five days a week, da, da, da. It's almost as if it's like a form of like, you know, there's, there's different forms of like employment and these are prisoners of war. So obviously I'm not saying that they, they fully practice this properly, nor am I saying that it was humane in the Malian empire, but the yeah. fact that it was different and the yeah. scholars won't, I mean, they'll try to make points like that. It shows how ignorant that they are of yeah. all these different African cultures. Yeah. 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 And I think that's it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's important for us to, to, to know what type of thing is happening out there. It's unfortunate the so-called scholars of our history have these type of understandings, interpretations, which means their lack of understanding of the integral developmental processing and functioning of African communities and cultures, which is a continuity, it's a continuation. You know, and to actually try to put a European perspective in any part of Africa and open for it to fit, it's like cancer, you know, which grows into the body. The first thing that happens with the body is rejection. It doesn't fit. So you have to manipulate it in some way with drugs and all these other type of things in order for it for, for you to deal with that, you know. And it's, it's it's no different if we use that analogy when we're looking at history and we're looking at culture and we're looking at the different types of recordings that is taking place. Because even with ancient Egypt, even when um, the 25th dynasty, you had the likes of Shabaka and Pianke and Tahak and all those groups of people, when Pianke had taken over in, in Mero, Napata, and obviously he went to what you call it, and he went up into lower Egypt in order to solidify the religion and also to solidify the religion upper Egypt. How did these Nubians knew this? Unless they had contact with the ancient Kemetic people for centuries. They're the only people historically recorded to go in and understand the religion without being taught and to reestablish it. And they reestablished it until the coming of the Assyrians, around about 663, 662, 663. So what I'm trying to show you is that culture has continuity, it has connections, and it has relatedness. So you don't have to look, you know, they always like to look outside of the continent to try to give them some legitimacy. Just go south. You find it all there. You know, just go west, go to Libya. You find it there. You will find the connections. Because they got the people believing, if you look at ancient history, that they had no relationship with the Libyans. Who told them this? They had no relations with the Nubians. They had no relation with the North Africa. This is not true. And that is because what they've done, they've looked at the nation as it is today. And if you notice when they look at the empire or its greatness, it's always, uh, you know, it's always in the Levant, the Mesopotamia. They always like to go right. They never like to go left to show you the massive impact of, you know, of what these 
what these groups of people had as far as influence was concerned, etc. So it's our responsibility to ensure that we do the right thing. Even me as an African Caribbean, I'm not even, and I specialize, and like I said, an expert in African history. I am not going to do what other groups of people do. And that is to force my interpretation into a country that you belong to or a continent that you live in. There's no way I'm going to do that. I'm going to sit and listen and learn and try to understand from your perspective. Because that's the problem with scholarship in the Western world with African-Americans and African-Caribbeans. All of a sudden, we are experts in, in African history. And then we want to go in with the same European mentality to tell the Africans how to interpret their history. You know, and we have to be careful not to do this. You know, if we're looking at things from a Pan-African perspective, etc., we must take a step back or two and allow them. Let's teach them what we know, but give them. This is why Basil Davis and I respect as a scholar. If you know this, if you look at the documentary of Basil Davison, who's a white historian, he's, he's dead now. He was a white historian in the UK, etc. Whenever he went to Africa, he went to Egypt, he went to Nubia, he went to Ethiopia, Axum, Kush, and all those places. Whenever it came to the crucial part, this is what this white man did. Whenever it came to the crucial part of looking at the high culture and looking at understanding the way that the people communicated and the way they did things, he made sure he got an indigenous person from that country to speak. That's what you're supposed to do. You got, you got non-indigenous people speaking. It's, this is wrong, you know? It's like asking me about Henry VIII and, you know, Queen, Queen Elizabeth and all those. Even the liberal white person in this country wouldn't even accept what I had to say, who's supposed to be my friend. And it's about reflection. You know, they, they, you know, if you see yourself in people, they look like you. Who are you now to tell the story? And this is what I mean when I see my history being portrayed by groups of people with a different complex. I have a problem with that. And if I don't see myself looking like those people, etc., that is distortion, falsification, suppression, fabrication to intentionally confuse. And there's nothing more than transubstantiation, whereby a group of people who's living in a particular area or country, no matter where in Africa, are basically trying to attribute the achievements and accomplishments of people they're not even historically related to, to themselves. And that is because they don't have their own history, unfortunately. And this is a challenge. You know, they don't know where they came from. They don't know how they got there, etc. So they have poor oral history cultural history about themselves. And that only happens when there is miscegenation and exogamy taking place. You get mixed marriages and you get people coming in and they mix together. The narrative gets lost because, you know, groups of people come in, you're, you're partly native and you're partly foreign. And then another group of people come in and then it depends which culture becomes the dominant to the point where you only accept the culture for the land. No longer understanding the cultural backgrounds to where your great-great-grandparents came from, what they understood, why they came to where you are today. You know, it, it's just sad. And that is the reality uh, of, of our situation. So as, 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 as historians, we have to be careful of not to do what Europeans and other groups of people who've moved into our countries have done by displacing us so they can tell our story. We have to be careful with that. And people in like, for my, for my people, African-Americans, African-Caribbeans, 
we have to be very sensitive with this. Even though we love Africa and we study it, etc., let's not become the, the main narrators of someone else's culture, someone else's past, someone else's contribution, someone else's, let's work alongside them, not to take them over. Well, I'm the expert, so therefore I should do that because we're only gonna do what Eurocentrics have done before us. And we have to make sure that we don't fall into that, um, you know, uh, space. Yeah, thank you so much, Abu Bakr. It's been a great podcast. And I mean, this is something we might even have to do a part two because there's so many different topics we're not able to cover. But yeah. yes, thank you so much for your time. And I think we'll do one last thing just before you go. Um, if you could recommend three books that every everyone should read that will tell them about African history or Black history in general, which books would they be? Right. The three books I would I would mention from a historical perspective, I would say They Came Before Columbus by Ivan Van Sertima, because it looks at two aspects. It looks at the African presence in early America, um, which dates back to the 25th dynasty with the ancient, uh, the ancient Kushites, who were then rulers of ancient Kemet. And when the Assyrians came in, they, that group of people ended up in so-called South America, Central America. And they helped to build those pyramids because the pyramids didn't become built until the people of the 25th dynasty came in. Came in. So that's one book to read. And obviously looks at the Malayan influence as well, you know, during the time of Mansa Musa and 2000 ships leaving the coast of West Africa to go into Central America and South America. So looking at that African presence before slavery. So I'm trying to come away from the slave narrative. That's one good book. Another good book, which I think would lay the foundation, Sheikh Antidiop's book, which is called Civilizational Barbarism looking at an authentic anthropology. And what he does, he looks at the aspect of the origins of African, because he was an Egyptologist, he was the first black Egyptologist, he was Sheikh Antidiop. And what that looks at, it looks at the beginning of African civilization through archeological excavations, which is done by the likes of Dr. Louis Leakey, you know, looking at the origins where civilization or culture first begins in places, what is known as a great Great Lake regions, such as Tanzania, Kenya, Ethiopia, or that regions, the origin of man. And then he goes into the scientific elements. So he looks at paleontology, anthropology, etc. And he looks at the evolution of Egypt and how those tribes from the south, you know, went up to the north. So all that is culminated into an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary perspective. And the other book, which I think is pretty good uh, by a white author. So one is a Caribbean author, Ivan Van Sertima. The other one is an African author. And I think what is a good white author, which is simplistic, just to get the ball rolling, is called Black Spark, uh, White Fire. I think that's what it's called, is by Richard Cole. It's a thick book. He's very contemporary. He's a journalist, but he's also he has also has an interest in history. And there's an African pharaoh in the front of his book, which is a re reconstruction of the face of a particular mummy. And his book is pretty good. And he looks at the contemporary aspect. He looks at some of the, the discourses and the fabrication and the falsification that has come from Egyptologists. So I think if we if we say if we if we say that 
to read it from a white man's perspective may be more digestible. I think more people will take it on in a serious manner. So Black Spark, uh, Black Spark, White Fire, you know, talking about the, the beginning of civilized culture, high culture civilization by Black or African people, and how that emerged into the Greco-Roman period, right up until Western society or civilization is today. So they're the three books I would say, just to get people started and going. Thank you so much once again. I'll end off by just giving um, a bit of a caveat for people. Like, obviously you've heard a lot of things. You might be like, oh, but this, this goes against what I've learned. This podcast is not about just, oh, asserting views and asserting truth. It's like everyone gets to speak their truth, right? Whether you disagree with it or not, I mean, just read, like, you know, acknowledge people's views, etc. And remember, this is history, right? As long as the methodology is valid, right, then a theory becomes valid, right? So this is one thing that you need to be open-minded about, especially when it comes to academia. So even if you're skeptical, whatever, even if whatever, just read <laughs> and, you know, be able to justify with, uh, you know, your evidences as well, right? And this is exactly how discourse is created. Discourse is useful, but taking things to be certain truths just because they've come from Europe, that's something we really need to start rethinking. And once again, thank you so much, Abu Bakr, and we're going to end the podcast here. And we'll see you in the next episode, guys. <laughs>